Thanks for tuning into Sporting Dog Talk. I'm your host, Tony Peterson. If you've ever wondered whether some dogs have good noses and some dogs have bad noses or how good a good dog nose is versus an okay dog nose, you're going to want to listen to this one. I'm chatting with a woman named Hannah Decker, who's earning her master's degree right now, and she has devoted her not only her life, but her education path to dogs and the human dog relationship. And more recently, getting dogs to use their noses in all kinds of crazy ways and really trying to understand what they're capable of doing. Um, Really interesting woman offers up some information that I've never heard out of anyone before in all the interviews I've done. So just a fascinating listen. If you haven't left us a review or a rating, please do that. If you haven't subscribed, please do that. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Come here, bear. Hunt dead, bear. Hunt dead. That dog is family. Do something with a dog. It improves your overall quality of life. But girl. Hannah Decker, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yes, thanks for having me. You are a bright, bubbly dog enthusiast, and I'm so excited to have you because uh, our mutual friend, Erica uh, Fierbacher, recommended you and said, you are you are somebody who we have to get on. And so we've been chatting a little bit off air here, and you are you, you remind me of one of those people who was put on this earth <laughs> to do something with dogs. Thank you. It's not always the case, but you can tell, I can usually tell pretty quickly when I'm talking to somebody, if they're that kind of person. And you, you just gave us a little rundown of your schooling and you're in the arc of your life up to this point. And it has been all about being around dogs and horses. Yes. Big dog fan. Uh, Some people would call it an obsession. I call it a passion. You, but you're in school, so you don't, you don't actually have a personal dog with you, right? No, I, so last semester, my fall semester, um, I actually was training a service dog in training. And so she actually just went back to the organization to do her final training to hopefully be placed. So I'm currently dogless for the first time, probably since sophomore year of undergrad. And it's so odd. And I'm trying right now to figure out how I can get my hands on another dog, whether that be a foster dog, another service dog in training, or some, my own dog, who knows, but We'll see. <laughs> Isn't it weird when you go from being around one to one suddenly not be there and you notice all the little places in your life where they're missing? It's terrible. I don't like it. I don't know what to do with myself. I feel like I have so much extra time. <laughs> do you do you feel so uh, maybe this is a weird thing to bring up, but when when I had to put my last dog down, it was at it was at a weird time. You know, I had twin one year olds at home. And I, it was just coming into spring. My wife was like, don't get a dog. Don't get a dog. Don't get a dog. We have these babies to take care of. But as soon as I had to put Lux down, I was like, I can't live like this. Like I No, it's terrible. Yeah. And you feel like I felt a little guilty because like, oh, you go to bed at night. You don't have to let the dog out. And you're like, oh, this is kind of convenient. But like the the pros of a dog so outweigh those cons. And it's just so... I feel for you, but you'll, you'll be out of school eventually, maybe, right? And you'll be able to fill eventually. your house with dogs. Maybe. We'll see. So let's let's talk about that because you went to school originally out in Montana uh, to get a degree that people probably have not heard of or yes. to, to study something that people have probably not heard of. Yes. It's a very new and up and coming thing. So it's called anthrozoology. And the definition is the study of human the human-animal interactions and relationships, or what I call it, the human-animal bond. And so in Montana at Carroll College, we focus on dogs and horses because they're easy to get your hands on, they're easy to work with, they're easy to for the students to go out and be able to do things with. And so we focused on those two species. Obviously, we talked about other species, but we focused mainly on those. So we had specific canine classes, and we also had specific equine classes, which was super cool. Um. This is a common thing that comes up with people uh, who are drawn to dogs. There's also the horse connection. And me personally, I'm terrified of horses. Like 
because sometimes I have to get on them and I don't mm-hmm. want to ride a horse. Like I, I, I feel when I get on a horse, I'm on like a 10 foot unicycle and I'm just on my way to the ER next. I don't, I don't like it, but it's very common for people who are just drawn to train dogs and work with dogs to also have that, that horse connection as well. Yeah. I've noticed that too. And since I was little, we've always had dogs growing up, but we never had horses. We lived So I was actually born in California, and so we lived in the suburbs, so we didn't have horses. Um, We did have a few friends who had horses, so the first time I got to interact with horses was when we went to our friends' houses, and we always, I was always like, oh, can I please ride the horses? Like, I really just want to ride the horses, but other than that, and other than going to Carroll, I have very little interaction with horses, but for some reason, they just fascinate me. I think they're so cool. I love to watch them run. I love to watch them walk and all of their muscles, and I mean, they're kind of like really large dogs, which is pretty cool. (laughs) That you can ride and that can kill you. Uh, So what do you, when you go into that field that you did where you're studying the human animal bond and, you know, just obvious for obvious reasons, dogs are going to fall right into place and you've got the horse thing too. But where, and you mentioned off air that you did not want to be a veterinarian. And so I think people would hear that and they go, okay, well, you're going to, you're going to take this this educational path, you, that's probably the end game, but it wasn't for you. No. So, so I had wanted to be a vet when I was little, ever since I knew what the word vet meant and what all came with it. Cause I am a huge lover of animals, but junior year in high school, I was like, okay, I don't really want to do the vet thing. I was like, I love animals and they're my passion. However, I don't think I want to be in the medical field. And I kept hearing people tell me, oh, vet school is so hard to get into. Like, it's harder than medical school. And I was like, well, dogs are my favorite. I love dogs. I have a passion for dogs. And so my dad and I were actually at a college expo trying to figure out what I wanted to do because I had decided I didn't want to go to vet school. So I was like, okay, let's go to this college expo. Let's look for animal science degrees. Start there. Go from there. And we were literally just going up to all the booths and he would take one side and I would take the other side. And we were just scanning to see if they had animal science on their majors. And so he actually stumbled upon Carol and was like, what everybody else does. Oh, what's anthrozoology? What is that? Never heard of it. Don't know what it is. And then the people at the booths were explaining, oh, it's really cool. It's essentially the human animal bond. And right then and there, I was like, okay, that's, that's where I'm going. That's what I want to do. They work with dogs and horses. I was like, I'm done. I'm sold. We don't need to look at any other schools. I'm I'm going there. And so I knew that I wanted to do something with dogs. And this just happened to be one of the perfect options for me. Yeah. But so when you, when you make that decision, what's, what's the next step when you, when you go, okay, that's the degree. That's, that's what I'm going to pursue. What were you thinking beyond that? So uh, when I got to Carol, I was like, okay, this is really cool. They train dogs. And before I went to school there, I was stalking their Facebook pages, trying to figure out what anthrozoology was, what people did with anthrozoology. And my parents, of course, were like, oh, what are you going to do with that degree? Like, it's not like nursing where you get a nursing degree and you're a nurse or my mom's a teacher. So it's not like a teaching degree where you get your teaching degree and then you become a teacher. Like there's so many opportunities and it's because it's the study of the human animal bond. You can essentially do anything with animals, but my preferred animals were dogs. So I was like, okay, I want to train dogs. I was like, that's what I want to do. This just happens to be a degree that fits right in with that. And so then after my freshman and my sophomore year, I decided I was like, okay, pet dogs are cool, but I want to do stuff with working dogs. It's dogs are so incredible. They can do so many things. I think we undervalue all of their abilities because so many people have pets, which is awesome. Love pets, but they can do so many things. And so I was like, okay, I want to work with the crazy high drive working dogs. Like I want to be able to train them to their abilities. And so uh, what I was thinking sophomore year, Hannah was like, okay, after I graduate, I'm going to hopefully get a job as a dog trainer, work my way up and train working dogs. That's since changed a little bit. Uh, We've taken a slightly different path, but still the end goal would be to train and work with high drive working dogs in some capacity. Mm-hmm. So you're, I mean, and I, I, I kind of know where you're heading with that and it, I, and I, I want to get there, but I want to stop for a second because this is, this, it's a, it's a good lesson for anyone listening. Who's like, I don't know what to do with my life. And, right. you know, 
I even me growing up, I, I ended up, you know, still like my main job is as a writer. And I had people right. telling me growing up, like, you can't make a living doing that. It's not going to ha- you have oh, to go, yes. you know, get like a trade job or you have to go to school and become something that fits into a lane. And you're sitting there as young Hannah, not sure where to go in life, but knowing, hey, I love dogs. I, I want to do something here. But the one obvious path I don't want to take, you find this major and you go, OK. Now, now I have a new, a new way to look at it. And I think that's, there's a valuable lesson there because people, if you, if you, I, like, I can say this, I'm 39 years old. Like when you're young and you're like, well, I have to get out there. I have to make money. I have to do this stuff. Like you can find lots of ways to make money, but you probably won't be happy. And if you have something that you're super, super drawn to, there are probably options for you to, you're going to still work. You're going to work your butt off, but you're going to be in the neighborhood of something that you love. And that matters a lot. So I, I love your case. I think it's awesome. Yeah. And my dad, he's had so many jobs in his life and he still says that he doesn't know what he wants to be when he grows up. It's like, he never decided. And so like, he's still trying to figure it out. So, I mean, and me, I think I got really lucky. I never changed my major in undergrad, I always knew what I wanted to do where I have friends who changed their major three or four times because they weren't sure. I was like, I know I want to do dogs. I'm like, I'm just going to follow my passion, not listen to the naysayers who say, oh, you don't, you're not going to make any money with dogs. And like, for me, it's, it's not about that. It's about, this is what I love to do. And so like people say, like, if you're doing something that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I'm like, I would like to put them both together, work (laughs) and play. Well, you're going to work, but it's going to be good work. And, exactly. you know, I, I know an awful lot of dog trainers and I know that you can make some money at it. You will work real hard, but you'll wake up every day knowing that you get to go mess around with dogs and get to see, exactly. you know, the progression of them. Not only the things we know how to train dogs to do, the, the, the typical tasks, but these new fields and these new things that you've been exposed to that probably everybody hasn't. And, and the things we don't know that are coming down the road for five, 10 years down the road that dogs are capable of. And I, I don't, I'm, I'm curious about this. This is veering a little off course, but I, I want your imp- opinion on this. I feel like we're on the cusp of knowing, of, of having access to so much information about dogs right now. Like there's, there's research going on out there that we just, it just, there wasn't a focus on it 20 years ago. No. And, and now I, I feel like we're going to see some paradigm shifts in how we look at how dogs think and how they learn and how they handle stress and what we can ask them to do. And it's, I think it's super exciting. Oh, me too. Yeah. Who knows? And what we know now could be completely different than what we're going to figure out in 20 years. Like we may be doing things completely different because we learned how they think and how they process information and what, how they understand training techniques and all that fun stuff. Yeah, it's it's an incredible time. It's an incredible time to be a dog lover. And so yeah. some of these, some of the, I, I can tell where you come from because when we were talking off air, you said you you mentioned at one point in your schooling where you and some other students had to take on dogs and train them to do be some kind of detection dog or have some kind of job where they're using their nose. And you said one person trained an antler detection dog, which is awesome because in my world, they're just shed hunting dogs. And, but the way, the the way that you said it, I was like, I know where she's coming from. Yes. And you, you mentioned an archeology span or what did you say that the dog was, what was the title? Yes. Um, We call her an archaeological detection dog. There you go. And you got to train that dog, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So so explain to us what that dog's job is. And then I want to get into how you train a dog to do that job. Yeah. So right now she is placed, her owner is an archaeologist. And so she has her own company. And so they live in Montana. So right now it's not the ideal climate um, for her to be searching for archaeological bones. But I trained her to detect archaeological mammal bones. So only mammals. And so her job when the season comes will essentially be to accompany her archaeological owner um, into fields or areas that they need to be searched. And so the goal would be for her to essentially search this area because obviously we're humans, we have eyes and they have been doing this for so long that they, there are little things that they can pick up on where they think these bones might be, um, but they can't see or smell however many feet into the dirt. And so like dogs can. And so essentially the goal will be for her to search an area or a field 
and then be able to tell her owner, hey, mom, there is a some type of bone here. Um, you should check it out. You should dig up this area and see what's under here because we can't see. And it might be completely different than an area that she thought there were actually bones at. And so her indication is actually a bark. And so we've trained her to have a pretty nice search pattern. And so she'll go up and down a field. And then if she finds something, um, she barks. And then she also has started to dig a little bit, which is kind of helpful. It's like, oh, here's this perfect area. You should try to search it and see if there are bones here. So first off, what kind of dog is this? She is a Border Collie Australian Shepherd mix. So she's a high drive working dog. I mean, she's just, she's, she's got the drive in her. Um, how do you, so I don't understand how a dog smells old bones that are under the dirt. And I, so I, I can, I'm correct me if I'm wrong here, but I have an idea how you get them to start to like them, um, and to, to start signaling them. But can you just walk us through that process? So you're, you're like, okay, I got to train an archeological dig dog. Like, how do I, how do you start that? Like, where, where are you like, okay, this is step one. So step, so there are so many ways to train a dog to do one thing. And so my junior year, when I was training my first detection dog, um, trying to figure out how to train a dog, I trained him one way. And then I actually did an internship at the Penn Vet Working Dog Center and figured out how they train dogs. And so coming back to that, I was like, okay, what's going to be the best way to train this dog? And so essentially what we did, we got a bunch of bones from the archaeologists, thankfully. So we had access to a bunch of different scent articles. What what kind of bones were they? A lot of bison. Um, some deer, some, uh, bighorn sheep, some, I think those were the main three. There were some other ones that are slipping my mind right now, but it was a lot of deer and it was a lot of bison. And so the first thing we did was my professor at the time of this class that I was taking with Dax, her name is Dax, um, the dog. And so he was like, okay, dogs have a better time smelling things when there's more surface area. I was like, okay. So the first thing we did was we ground up these bones. And so we ground them up into essentially powder. And so tons and tons of surface area. So things, the VOCs to evaporate and all that fun stuff. Um, And then to make it motivating to the dog, because the dog is not like, yes, they like to chew on bones, but these are really old bones. And so like, how do you make this motivating to a dog? So essentially how I learned to train a dog was to shove all this powder in a little bag into a Kong, into a little baby Kong. And so we just played heavily with this scented Kong. And so that when she was playing, she automatically would smell these bone particles, this bone powder, and it would be fun to her. And then eventually I knew that I wanted to get a bark indication out of her because I wasn't sure how far away she would be from her owner. And so I wanted her owner to know and be able to locate her out on the field. And so the bark was the easiest way to do that. Now she is a Border Collie Australian Shepherd. So being the herding dog that she is, she doesn't get too far away from her owner without knowing where she is. And so looking back, I probably could have trained a different indication, but we went with the bark and it's worked out. And so essentially to get her to bark, we would agitate her. And so we would put this scented Kong under a box or under a crate and try to like entice her to get it, but then not let her get it until she let out this little tiny pipsqueak bark. And then when she let out this little bark, then it would be a huge party and we would have fun and play tug and all that fun stuff. And so eventually we would start hiding these bones. We started inside just so there was less distractions. So we would hide in random places and then she would have to use her nose to locate it. And then when she did, she would bark. And then eventually we added more barks and then we went outside. And then when we did go outside, I think she was about, I want to say around four months when we, we started probably around 11 to 12 weeks old with the scent detection training. And then when she was about four months, then we finally moved outside because she's not going to be searching for bones inside. So we might as well start with going outside as soon as we can. And so then we just built on it from there. And then eventually this is still with the Kong. So it's still with the scented Kong. And then eventually we unpaired the Kong and the smelly bone powder until we could just put a little tiny bit of bone powder. We could just pour it out of the bag onto the ground and then she would be able to hit that. And so then once we saw that she was able to hit just smelly bone powder, then we started using the whole bones without grinding them up. So we would use like 
femurs or teeth or skulls or vertebrae, anything that the archaeologist gave to us, essentially. And then we would try to keep our human scent off of it as much as possible. We would wear gloves and use tongs and all that fun stuff. Then we would just start planting them, slowly increasing the difficulty level. And then eventually when she started understanding that game where she would find real bones, then we started burying them. And so the burying process was probably the hardest process just because it's, you have to do so many more things. So like you have to bury the bone, but then you also have to dig up other dirt piles so that they're not just pinpointing the disturbed earth. And so then we started hiding human products too. So like anything else we would touch like highlighters or pens or pieces of paper so that she wasn't just hitting on human scent with the disturbed earth. And then after she started doing really well with that, then we had to age them because these bones are sitting for hundreds and thousands of years without being disturbed. And so thankfully her owner was super dedicated. So we would take a bunch of bones and we would go out and have burying parties. And so we would just bury all these bones everywhere and like mark down where we put them. We would make like markers like, Oh, it's, one foot in front of the tree with the L-shaped branch. And so then we would have like these areas and we would let them sit for months and months and months. And then we would test her on them to see if she could do it. And then we would go to various levels too. So like one is right under the surface, one's two inches under the surface, one's three inches, so on and so forth. So that we knew that she could pass all of these essentially tests to see if she could do it. And so uh, this summer when she gets to go back to her job, she's been practicing but when she gets to go to real world scenarios, we're going to test her and see, like, can she actually do this? Is this a thing? She did really well last summer. Um, she found a partially buried bone, which was super helpful. We threw a huge party. It was awesome. That was the first one that she had actually found that was buried and in real life and not just a training scenario. So we have really high hopes for her coming this summer that she'll be able to assist her owner on these digs. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a lot going on there there's there's no uh, so this kind of surprises me and maybe i'm wrong about this but you know you're you're using the the kind of bones that you can get your hands on so a deer bone or a bison or whatever you have access to elk whatever and but those the scent signature on though you know a femur bone out of a mule deer that there that's close enough where that dog can walk out theoretically and find you know some megafauna that was living here 15,000 years ago that died or was at a kill site or something. And they, that scent signature is close enough where that dog is going to be able to go. Yep. That's a bone. I got it. So the things, so the bones that we were given by the archeologist were ones that she had found on her past digs. And so she had only found these common species that we have now. So like they are thousands of years old, but they, from what they can tell, it is only bison or it is only deer or it is only, jackrabbit or bighorn sheep so i to answer i don't know maybe maybe not we'll have to see well it's i no, i'm just i'm just curious about that and it, i, I want to back up a second before we move on so when you're talking about you know, essentially to get that dog to signal correctly you have to go through all these steps and then you have to you have to step up the uh, difficulty level in these like little tiny steps and right. And you, what you mentioned there is something I see, you know, we, we talk to, you know, bird dog trainers all the time. People own a lot of hunting dogs, right? And what you alluded to without really saying it is that dog's smart enough to know that if we're playing the game today and I walk out there and I don't pay attention to my human scent and I bury this and it's the only disturbed dirt, that dog goes out there and goes, I know exactly what she just did. And so you're actually working to, it's not necessarily to trick the dog, it's to force the dog to use its nose the way you need it to for its job. Right. Because they are animals. They want to find the easiest path to get the reward. They want to cheat. They want to cross boundaries. They want to cut lines. They want to do whatever they can to get their reward as fast as they can. So we have to stop and say, okay, yes, I understand that you want to get the reward, but if you're going to false indicate on this human buried scent article, it's not going to count. Like, come on, let's get back to work. Let's remember what we're doing. And she's like, okay, fine. I mean, I guess I will go find the bone. That's, I mean, that lesson there is, it's really important for a lot of different kinds of dog training that we deal with. And I I dealt with that specifically training my dog to find antlers because, you know, it's so easy to grab an antler, throw it out there. That dog learns immediately. Okay. He touched it. That's all like, that's, 
exactly. like easy, easy stuff for them. So I had to actually do with my dog to get her because you want with shed dogs, you want them to work off their noses, but you also want them to work off their eyes because, you know, they're running yeah. out in a cut field or something. They see that you want them to go investigate. And, you know, right. it's not just it's not something that's giving off a ton of scent the same way a, a pheasant out there. I actually had to use a, an ozone generator. And I would treat the antlers with ozone, kill all the scent on it, and treat yeah. the treat the gloves too. And then I would throw it out there, and then I would leave it for like twenty four hours. And then I could watch her, and my dog would sprint downwind of it and not stop. And I go, okay, now I know at least you're you're in the ballpark of like that antler that might fall off a deer's head and be out there for three months. Exactly. And so it's there's an interesting training lesson there with this this dog that you're working with just to find bones so so continue so this dog's progressing along it's it's already found one that was partially buried you said and so the hopes are that this dog's going to run out and be able to you know I'm, I'm sure the archaeologist is looking going man this site seems like it's got all the makings of you know there's a there's a water hole here a creek that's been here you know for however long or you can see how the land has changed so they're starting they're not just walking out there blindly but still right. to pinpoint it with that dog that, that's Absolutely. an incredible task yeah and so before i left montana um i was there until july of this past summer and so i worked with the archaeologist and her dog obviously and so we would go to dig sites where had they had previously found bones and this is a, it's a team, like the dog and the owner are a team. They're supposed to work together. The dog helps the owner, the owner helps the dog. And so we would go out to sites and the owner would be like, okay, we found bones here last time. There might be some more in the area. She's like, this looks like a good site for us to start looking. And so we would go through and we would look and then we would check the area. And so one of the areas was actually along a river. And it was really cool to see because you could see me and the owner being visual people. So we were trying to see if we could see bones eroding out of the dirt, trying to see, and then trying to see if Dax would indicate on them. And so there were actually bones eroding out of the river. And we were like, okay, we've never done this scenario before. We don't, we have no idea how the bones react with the water. If she can smell them through the water, if she smells the surrounding areas, we're like, we don't know. So we're like, we're going to try it. Worst case scenario, we pull them out have her indicate on him, throw a party, like, oh, you can do this. This will be really cool. And so we walked her past him and she indicated. And it was so cool. We're like, okay, we don't know how long these bones have been here. I haven't touched them. The archaeologist hasn't touched them. We don't think people have touched them. They've been sitting in this water and she hit it. It's like, it's it's working. It's hopeful, but she is still young. So she does have a lot of work to do, but we're hopeful. She's She's what, two years old, you said? She's not quite two. She's about a year and a half. So, so anybody listening to this who thinks that their GSP or their lab can't, doesn't have a good nose and can't smell a grouse that just walked through there, here's a, here's a not quite two year old dog signaling to bones that are in the water. I mean, think about, think about the capability of that dog's nose. And that's not a, that, like that dog hasn't been bred for generations and generations no, to do no, that. It was a, it's a Montana oops litter is what I like to call them. The Montana farm oops litters. One dog went under the fence and the other dog went under the fence and they weren't altered. And so there's a litter of puppies. Yeah. And, and yet what that speaks to, to some extent is, you know, knowing that there's Collie in there and Shepherd, whatever, there's, there's that working drive right. that the genetic level drive is still there to do a task and you're just like, Hey, here's a new task. Let's work on it. And that dog's like, all right, I'm game. And I love that. I love that you say that when the dog has success, you throw a party. Cause it's like, oh <laughs> it's so my professor, sorry. My professor would say, if you don't sound like a seven year old girl, you're doing it wrong. Yep. It's totally true that they are. I love that. I mean, we've seen the memes about dogs and how it's like, it's, it's awesome. Cause they're always ready to party no matter what's going on. Yes. But that, that, success. I mean, I just, I took my, uh, I took my lab into the, for annual checkup at the vet this past yeah. week and whatever happened to her the first time she was there, she loved it. Like whatever, however they treated her and the treats they gave her or whatever, yep. <laughs> my dog gets to the, like, she's a, she's not even, she's a pretty quiet dog. She doesn't bark a lot. You know, she, she'll whine a little bit if she gets really excited, you know, but we pull up to that vet and she sees the, like the front of the vet office and she goes freaking nuts. And it's so embarrassing for me. Cause when I get her in there, it's like, this dog's never been trained ever. And she's a good right? dog, but she just, she's like, I'm, I'm going for it. 
And she just remembers that. It's just like the past association from when she was a little puppy. She loved it. And that stuck. And she's seven years old now and still loves it. And you have to think about that's so much better to have her be excited than to be trying to cower in the corner or trying to run, in, run out of the building. Well, for, for everything. I mean, it, this is what we're yeah. learning about dogs and dog training. You know, there's a you know, there's a reason that positive reinforcement is the way to go now. Like we've learned, we went through a phase a long time ago where people were training negatively and they were getting, they were getting results through force, but right. a, a different way. And th those things have changed now. And we, we've just yeah. learned how dogs respond, what they respond to and how you get those lessons that aren't just false positives, how you get them to stick long-term. And it's, it's incredible to see. It is. And to them, a lot of the working dogs, it's, it's a game to them, like search and rescue dogs. When they indicate and they bark at somebody that's under some rubble, they just want that person to give them their toy. Like yep. they don't know that the person is trapped. Like they just think that they have their toy and then they need to bark until the person gives them their toy. Yep. So it's a whole game. It's just fun to them. It's all, all of these tasks we ask them are like that. Even, even, you know, like the military, the police dogs, that's it. We were assigning stuff to it that doesn't exist in the dog's world. Like we're putting emotion right. and we're putting extra stuff in there that really that dog's just like, Hey, I, this is what I like to do. And I know if I do this kind of behavior, I get some kind of reward. And that's exactly. just, that's, that's like the, it's like fundamental to everything we ask of them. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like they're at the end of the day, they're just animals trying to survive and get their rewards. Like it's so fun for them. Like, Oh, if I do this, then I get a piece of a treat. Or if I do this, then I get to bite the human tug toy. It's like, it's just a huge game. I feel as, as a dude who's been married a long time and has two eight year olds, I feel like I'm an animal just trying to survive and get my rewards too. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like we're animals too. As humans, we are animals. Yeah. I, uh, I had a long conversation with my daughters about that the other day. Um, all right. So what, what else is going on in your world? Uh, training scent dog wise, like what are, what are you thinking about? What are you working on? What's what what's your hope for some of the things you'll be able to do in your life along that vein of training dogs to sniff out cool stuff? So right now for my master's degree, so I'm getting my master's right now, and so the reason I'm here essentially is to try to create a citizen science conservation scent detection team in the Blacksburg area. So what that essentially means is I'm going to try to train pet dogs and their owners on conservational scent targets so that we will assist in some way like the environment. And so we know that it can be done. Um, I did a little bit of work. I got really lucky in my connections um, back in Montana. I worked at a doggy daycare and boarding facility who also happened to help train dogs for working dogs for conservation. And so we know it can be done, obviously, with these teams and these really high drive dogs. We know that these dogs can be deployed to find conservation scent targets to be taken out or to be fixed or something along those lines. So we know it can be done, but we don't know if it can be done in the real world for pet dogs, pet dogs that aren't specifically bred to do these specific things. These dogs might not have as high energy as some of the other dogs being deployed. So can we do it? And so that's my job essentially. And so the two scent targets that we're looking at right now are the spotted lanternfly, um, which is an invasive species. It's crept down the East Coast. There's Right now, they're only in a little bit of Virginia, but unfortunately, I foresee them coming to be in Virginia more and more, especially this summer when all the eggs hatch. Um, so hopefully, we can be prepared and try to combat that before it becomes huge issue in Virginia. Um, right now it's a lot in Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, all those states up there. And so that's one of our scent targets. And then the other one is a mildew that grows on grape vines. It's called powdery mildew. It can grow on other crops too, but we're looking at it specifically on grape vines. And so what happens is in a vineyard, it can take over a whole vineyard and the person who owns and tends to the vineyard, when they see it, when they find it visually, then it's too late. So if we can get these dogs to indicate on it before it gets that far, then we can save the crops and the vines. Um, but we don't know yet. It hasn't been done with dogs, so we don't know for sure. So those are the two scent targets that we're looking at now. And so we've trained a couple of our lab dogs on spotted lanternflies. So we know, and they're just pet dogs. We know they can do it. 
they are high drive, high energy. They're excited. There's two shepherds and then a, I call him a shelter special. We're not really sure what he is, um, but he enjoys doing it. So that's all that we care about. Um, so we know that we can do it. So now we have to, uh, now the next step is to train the community dogs to do it. And then after they are trained to do it, can they actually be deployed like a conservation dog? Can they do it? Can they, do they have the capacity? Do they have the drive to go out into these real world environments to actually find these scent targets that they were trained to find in a sort of contained environment? So we'll be working on that for this semester. Um, I'm really excited. I haven't started. I've held a meeting, so we know people are interested, but we're waiting on trying to heat our training area. So then we will start the training and all that fun stuff, the imprinting and all the stuff that goes in with layering scents onto these pet dogs. So that's fascinating. I think just hearing you say that, I don't, I, I mean, I, obviously I'm probably not privy to all the details and everything, but I don't understand why it wouldn't work. Like I don't understand. I don't yeah. It, so you, you probably didn't listen to this, but we did an episode, an early, early episode. It was like our fourth or fifth episode with a fellow named Christian Fritz. Um, he lives down in Texas and he's training dogs to find endangered sea turtle nests. And Oh, yes. So, you know, and this dude, he, he knows how to train, train dogs, you know, and he, he's he's got a little bit of a background in this, but he just saw this opportunity where they were having really high mortality rate with these nesting turtles and they couldn't find the nest. If they can find them and incubate those eggs, then they can, they have a higher mortality or a, a higher survival rate. Yes. And so he's like, well, why can't a dog smell this? And, you know, their big issue was getting a hold of, you know, cause they're on the endangered species list. So you can't get a right. hold of like that. You can't possess any part of them, but they could get like some yeah. of the amniotic leavings and mix right. that with scent. Kind of like you're talking about with the crushed bone. And yeah. what he did, it, he, it's awesome what he did, but it's not like a revolutionary idea with dogs. He just no. said, well, they're going to be able to smell this better than some dude walking down the beach, poking into the sand, hoping to hit a nest. And so when you describe this about a dog being able to signal on some kind of lanternfly or signal on some kind of, uh, you know, what's grown in the, in, on the grapes, they're like, I don't, it seems totally reasonable that they should you should be able to build that network yes i think the hardest like people talk about oh like people love to put the bloodhound on a pedestal they're like oh the bloodhound has the best nose like they're so good at scent detection yada 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 but all dogs can smell all dogs have the capacity to do it they just have different levels of motivation and so you just have to figure out how to make this random scent motivating to them, whether that be with treats, whether that be with praise, whether that be with food. And so if we can make this scent extremely, extremely motivating, then the dogs can do it. And like, we know people love doing things with their dogs. We know that nose work is a hit. People love doing nose work and it's kind of the same thing. So if we can just morph that into these dogs being deployed for conservational issues and being able to actually help the environment and do things for the environment, then it's a win-win. Like you still get to bond and do things with your dog and your dog gets to get out, but you're also helping the environment. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, so I think it can be done. So I'm excited. I, I think so too. And I, I want to back up a second about the, the nose thing. Cause I, I did want to ask you about this. It is so common to hear people say like, Oh, I love, you know, I love Britney's or I love whatever name your dog breed because they have good noses. And I'm always right. like, like, have you met, I, I don't know if I've ever met a dog with a bad nose. Like, exactly. you know, I've met dogs that know how to use their nose better yeah. out in the field and have had some experience, but I think the worst dog nose out there could, could do any task you're talking about probably yes. if, with the and, right training. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I can't remember the study, um, or what exactly they did. I can't remember the small details, but one of my professors showed us a study with a pug and with another dog and they had the same smelling capacity like you they can do it and i'm gonna throw my dad under the bus but we have he has two dogs at home and one of them is a she's a lab pointer springer mix and so and she just has the innate ability like she just likes to watch birds and so like she that's motivating to her and so she'll use her nose a lot if there was a bird there or something and he just got a dog um, from the shelter he adopted one shelter special. I'm not sure what he is. Um, but he's like, he just, he was taking him on a walk and he's like, he just doesn't have the same nose as Sadie. And I'm like, 
Mm, but he does. He just, he's like, yeah, we were walking past this thing and he didn't really care about it. And I was like, well, he, that wasn't motivating to him. Like he really wasn't interested. He really didn't need to smell whatever was on the ground. Like he just didn't care. But if it was something else that he did care about, I'm sure he would be all over it. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's sort of understanding the individual dog and what, what's, what's making that dog tick. I mean, literally as we were, before I put my little girls on the bus this morning, uh, they, they always like buying my dog toys, you know, like for Christmas and stuff. And my, my last dog loved toys. She carried them around all over and she, she played with them. Like you'd see her playing with them by herself and stuff. My current dog does not care about toys. Like she just, Mm -hmm. she really doesn't. But like, and so the girls feel bad. And my one daughter, she's like, I don't know why Luna doesn't like this toy. And you know, she's standing there shaking it in front of her face. And I was like, just throw it. (laughs) <laughs> like just throw it like, you yeah. throw it down the hallway and luna's like yes this is the part i like about toys and then goes and gets it she wants to retrieve she's not just gonna lay there and play and it's just a simple there's just like a simple difference there but that's her reward the run and bring it back yeah every dog is different they are different but they all have they they all have the ability to do some really cool stuff. And I think that's why what, what you're working on there to get average people involved. I mean, you're probably going to get like upper level dog lovers. You know, you're probably, <laughs> I would say like there'll be a specific kind of person, but yes. to show, you know, to show the world that you could take a small group of people who own working dogs and those dogs are already pets and they maybe have some other roles. They might be hunting dogs or they might be, they might have therapy dogs or something. They might have some other right. kind of role and to say, by the way, we have invasive species we're dealing with all over. All, you know, all over, yeah, everywhere. It, it, like This is, the world is changing. And yes. the sooner those kind of issues. So we, we think of conservation this way, like as, you know, the dogs that are out there identifying the, the native versus the non-native trout and ste- in sections right. of streams out in Montana or something. And yes. we think of conservation as kind of a... Uh, uh, I don't know, like working to build up, you know, animal populations or working to restore certain fish populations. But we also have this conservation duty to catch invasives and non-natives as quickly as possible Absolutely. to preserve the environment as much as we can. And so that that is actually going to be probably a bigger issue as the world really gets smaller and we're able to travel and ship more and, and yeah. you know, like – International commerce just becomes so much simpler to come across that all of these things are getting introduced. And, you know, I, I had a conversation. I had to interview somebody here with the Minnesota DNR about invasive species and, you know, our lakes. That's the big issue, you know. Yeah. And some of them have hit and really not been that bad. Like you can see they cleaned up the water some places. And so people will use that as an argument like, well, you know, if these weren't that bad, what are we worried about? And everybody who I've ever interviewed, the biologists, they're always like, it's the one we don't see coming. It's the one yeah. that, you know, like you just because this one broke a certain way and it wasn't so bad or it might have helped a certain fish population for some reason, doesn't mean the next one does that. The next one could destroy exactly. that lake you love. And if we can't catch that right away, if it gets out too early, it's toast. So this this initiative it's that toast. you're doing is is incredible. Right. So the goal would be, obviously, for it to work. And then for people to see it and say, hey, I want to start one of these citizen science programs in my area for the conservation issues that we have in my area. And so they can get the pet dogs out in their area and then focus on their conservation issues and then so on and so forth. So this is, we it, should see. I think it's going to work. I, th- I mean, I think I it's think a – It sounds like a – sort of a logistical nightmare to deal with right? the I know. general public and their varying abilities but it's also it's it's such a good lesson like it makes me that makes me feel happy to be like an american when i hear you tell that story cuz i'm like man there there's just this woman who's deciding to design this thing that could essentially be like little franchises all over the country that could not only are those dogs going to be happier because they're doing something, they're going to have another job, right, exactly. but the dog owners are going to learn more about it. And it could have, you know, 20 years down the road, could have tremendous positive implications for our environment. And like, for example, some of the other things that we're looking at, um, so all of the owners are going to take a bark, So they're going to take the behavioral assessment questionnaire at the beginning and then at the end. And so a lot of people like, 
these dog breeds like Malinois and the Dutch Shepherd and all these high drive energy dogs, because they've been seen in movies or they're all over shelters, this, that, and the other, people get them and they don't know what to do with these dogs because they have never experienced one. They've never interacted one, but somehow they got it as a pet. So if we can give these dogs that need desperately need jobs, we're hoping that it'll improve their behavior and also improve their attachment to the owner. And so if we can do it for the better welfare of the dog, it's a win-win. Like the owner gets some peace of mind knowing that their dog did an awesome job at work. And then the dog can actually relax and have a good night's sleep because it actually got some energy out. It's a win-win. And so I'm really hopeful that it comes in motion and that we can get it developed elsewhere. Um, so we'll see. That, that point there with, you know, people seeing, you know, it's when you see a Belgian male, they're beautiful. And it's oh, like, oh. It, it's like being around like a super athlete. You're like, I just want to be around this. Like, yeah. but there's a lot under the hood of those dogs that the average person does not understand. Like I'm, I have more knowledge about dog training than a lot of people. I'm sure I don't want anything to do with a dog like that. That's, I look at that and I go, I don't know if I have that in me and people, people get them because they look cool or they think yeah. they're going to be like a nice protection dog. It's like mm-hmm. certainly, yeah, there's aesthetics there. There's that protection aspect, but there, you got to know what you're doing with a dog like that. And if you're not, if you don't have those outlets, like you're talking about, like nobody would think of this conservation group as being an outlet currently. Cause we don't even know right. about it, but exactly to give that dog a job. So now your dog has a purpose. You have a purpose with that dog besides just having a good companion. That dog gets to mm-hmm. burn some energy. It gets to use its brain. And so it's yes. going to go to bed at night and actually be yeah. happy and not seeking attention and seeking to do, you know, like s- seeking to do what it's supposed to do and is not being allowed to. And that's where some of the negative behaviors come from. Exactly. So yeah, hopefully. And what's cool about this too is, scent detection in itself it's physical and mental stimulation so the dog isn't just sitting there playing fetch for 50 tosses just running and running and running they also get to use their mental capacity too which works them and tires them out even more than just the physical so it's the best in my opinion it's the best of both worlds they get to use their nose they get to use their brain and they get to run around yep do you so this is probably a weird question but (laughs) do you think because i i watch my dog my dog lives to hunt right she, she, yeah. She'll retrieve whatever, but she's happiest when we're out hunting pheasants or quail yeah. or something. And she just gets to spend the whole day doing her thing and sniffing around. And I'm always, I, I watch her sometimes and I see, I see how she acts out there. And, you know, she has a purpose. Like she's, she's pretty driven, but she's also just like, sometimes I'm just like, I think she just likes to be out here and she's curious about the world. And I, I was like thinking about, it. I'm like, are dogs curious, like in the way that we think of it? I don't know, but they seem to thrive in comfortable new situations. I mean, I think so. Like if you take, like in Montana, um, part of my job working at the doggy daycare and boarding facility was to sometimes take boarding dogs on hikes and they, they love hikes. They get to smell all the things get to smell. There's animals everywhere in Montana. So they get to smell where a deer was or well, where elk were. And they wouldn't get to do that if they were just in a regular boarding facility in a kennel all day or something like they get to get out, they get to explore their environment. And even if they get hikes every day in a row, so they're hiking the same trail or the same general area, there's still different smells. There's still different people that pass through there. There's different animals that pass through there. There's still something different. And so like you said, we don't, we don't know if they're curious in the way that we think they're curious, but I, I do really think they like to explore and know who's in their environment or who's passing through their environment. So I do think they like to get out and explore, but like you said, we, we can't really pinpoint that. We don't really know, but I would say yes. I, th- I yeah. do think they like to explore. I, I do too, and I think they, they come from – you know, when you, when you watch wolves, like wolves don't live in a little tiny, you know, they they don't just claim three acres and they're like, ah, this is good. You know, they're, they're covering ground. And if you, you know, if you watch coyotes out in the wild, they are just covering ground and there's, you know, they're on, you know, we we're like, oh, he's out hunting or he's going back to his den or something like that. But, you know, you see them, you know, they're cruising pack lines and they're checking out, you know, they're marking territory and they're out doing stuff 
all yeah. the, you know, it's not like they won't go nap in a snowdrift or something like right. that, but they're on the move and exploring. Constantly. And, you know, like our dogs aren't so far removed from that world of canines where there's probably a, a hell of a lot left in them where they're just innately driven to go, like you said, figure out who's been here and who's been coming through and, hey, did the deer pass through yet? And, oh, what right. dog peed here? And it's just, it's probably something they just need to do. Yeah. And then they enjoy doing, they're like, Oh, this is a new scent. And it's funny too. You can see like if one dog figures out, Oh, this is a new scent or they found a new rabbit hole or something. So they'll sniff at it for a couple minutes. And then all the other dogs will come over and be like, Hey, what are you doing? What are you sniffing at? What, what's going on? And then they'll all just like sniff this one area together and then they'll move on and forget about it and go to the next area. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're total pack animals. And it that's, it, it, that's something that, that reminds me of what I wanted to ask you way, 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 way back in your education about, you know, the, the human animal bonds. And, you know, I'm sure you studied the history of, you know, how we came to came to have dogs and and how this has evolved a little bit. But what like what did that teach you studying that as far as like how did it inform your thoughts on being a better trainer? I think so a lot of people so before these times I guess you could say so like back in years and years and years ago I think we had this idea where we wanted to control the dog and essentially be the alpha of the dog and like whatever we said goes and they have to listen to us and submit to us but I like for me I think it's taught me that we need to be a team like when we Back in the day, years and years and however many years ago, when we were on the land and just living in the land and then there were these wolves, like they fed off of our scraps as much as we used them to help protect and keep other animals away from us. So I think it's a give and a take and it's a team thing. Like you can't succeed if your dog doesn't want to succeed with you. Like there has to be that mutual trust and that mutual bond saying, okay, I'm going to do something for you because I know that you're going to also pay me and do something for me. So I think a lot of times, lots of people don't like to pay their dog or give their dogs rewards because they think their dog should just do it because you told them to. And so for me, I think it needs like you need to pay them. Like as humans, we don't work for free. We work at jobs and we get paid and we know that we get paid. So why do we have to make our dogs work without being paid? I, For me, it doesn't make sense. And so for me, a lot of my education taught me like it's a mutual thing. It's a bond. We have to give them as much as they give us. And so we need to be that team and we need to pay our dogs. They do things for us. We do things for them. It's not just a one-sided relationship. So yeah, I mean, clearly it's just, it should be a, to to work well for everybody involved, it should be very symbiotic. But I mean, I know a lot of a lot of dog trainers would argue and say, well, you have to take the leadership role. Uh, otherwise it's like that dog doesn't understand where it's, you know, like where it sits. And it, it, and some dogs especially are going to be fighting to take that role because of the, right. the the drive for pack. So you still have to be, you, you have to take that role. Yes. But that doesn't mean that you can't pay your dog. Yeah. Like you're still a team. Even if you are the leader, there's different ways that people become leaders. Like you can be a leader and respect your dog and your dog respects you, but then you can also be a leader in the way that your dog is scared of you. So the only reason that they comply is because they're scared of the alternative. And so I think I agree with that, but I think there's different ways and maybe even better ways to be a leader. Yeah. Well, I say this all the time. There's no love and fear and you don't want to, you don't want your dog to be afraid of you. If you want your dog to like you and want to work for you and uh, treat you like a, like a buddy out there. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's, you know, the the way that you phrase it, you know, your, your dog needs to get paid. It's just, it's just the reward. It's just this, you know, it's this concept that we've, you know, we, we bump into this a lot. I'm always curious about it because, you know, a lot of people will treat trained puppies right away. Because it's so effective. And then, yeah. and, I mean, and we know this and you can eventually wean them off of tree training and go to praise and, you, you know, you can work through the steps, right? But right. I'll still have people who say, I don't believe in tree training. I won't do it. And I'm like, well, 
okay, then what do you do? <laughs> like when you have that right. puppy that doesn't exactly. really care about you. And so it's, we're in like a transitional stage, I think in, in dog training where you're just, you're on, you're like on one end of the positive reinforcement and saying, Hey, this give this dog some love and you'll have a better relationship with it. On the other end of it, we have that tail end that was in the training period where it was kind of a force make, you know, you're going to make them do, you're going to force compliance out of them. And we're just learning. You can get a, get an off, awesome result, not doing that. <laughs> you can go right. the other and way. Like, obviously when they're puppies and you're treat training, you want to reward like every time they do something so that they understand what you're asking and so when I say pay your dog, you don't have to pay them every single time. Like they should be able to do something that you've taught them to do without them needing a reward every single time. But eventually you're going to have to pay your dog or your dog is going to be like, why would I do that? I haven't like you haven't said good job. You haven't given me a treat. You haven't rewarded me with a toy. Like, I don't understand. I don't want to do that anymore. It's not fun. Yep. Well, you can I can see with my dog every year. Um, you know, we'll go out, we'll be pheasant hunting and, you know, I'll knock a rooster down and I'll mark it and send Luna in. And for some reason it's moved or it ran off or I didn't get it right. And right. if I stay like happy and like, you, like, you're going to get it. Like we're, we're yeah. just, we're just figuring this out and I'm, I'm resituating with the wind versus if I get angry and I'm like, why is this dog not? Then you see the, you see the body language change and the hunt changes and it doesn't do me any favors. It's dumb. Instead, if you stay excited and that dog's like, oh, we're still doing, we're still working on this. Then you get the result you want with a dog that's working for you in, in a different capacity. It's, it's a hard thing. Sometimes it is a hard thing. It's a hard thing to talk about, but when you see it, you know it. Like when you, when you watch that or you go through it, you go, okay, that I shouldn't have done that. And you know, right. we, we talk about this on the podcast a lot where like my dog, my, my dog doesn't make choices to piss me off. My dog, right. you know, she's not out there. Like I'm going to get him today. She just right. doesn't know what I'm asking. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just the communication with them that like, we, we, we're, we're like, oh, they don't understand what we're asking. A lot of times we don't understand what we're asking. Exactly. Or we give some sort of subtle nonverbal cue that might mean something to them that we don't even know what it means. And we're suddenly signaling our dog to do something. And we're like, why, why did my dog just do that? Like, I don't understand. And you don't know that your dog just looked at your hand and you pointed. So it ran that way or something. And it's human nature to get frustrated with your dog. Like maybe you trained it to do something and it's been doing this cue perfectly a hundred times, then it messes up on the 101th time. Like it's human nature to be frustrated, but then it's how you recover from that frustration. And the fact that you don't want to take it out on your dog who misunderstood or read the signals wrong. Like there's a lot of frustration that comes with dog training. Like dogs are animals. We're animals. Like they're, they're not going to be perfect. Yeah. Well, you got to, you know, I, I always think about it this way. Like there, there are times I know my dog well enough where if we go out to mess around, throw some bumpers around or something, they're just once in a while, I'll just see she's not into it. And this is, you know, Jessica Heckman talked about this a lot with the, the stress and, you know, maybe, maybe something stressful happened two days ago that's still right. catching up. And I'm always like, I, it, it doesn't bother me now. Cause I'm like, there's, there's times I don't want to sit down and record a podcast. Exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, sometimes I don't want to go to work. And sometimes so, you're not in the mood. <laughs> yeah. And, and we, but we look at dogs and we go, okay, well, I have, you know, half hour to train right now. So we're going out, we're going to do this and we're going to do this kind of training. And, you know, m f to their credit, most working dogs are like, yeah, okay, let's go do this. Right. Most of the time. But, you you know, you run into those times and that and then it leads back to the body language thing. And, man, we've had a lot of guests on lately who are really in tune with reading dogs and knowing what you're saying to them when you haven't, you, you know, like you think you haven't said anything. But like you right. said, the way your body moved or the way you're, you're just the tone in your voice changed or something there that we're saying lots of stuff to them without maybe even being cognizant of it. Oh, absolutely. And dogs learn 
quicker through motion and movement versus like verbal cues and stuff like that. And so they pick up on that. Like they're watching without you knowing it, they're watching you constantly seeing how you move or what way you look into them. Like if you do it multiple times and it means something, they're going to pick up on that and be like, Oh mom looked that way. I'm like, there's something over there that I should pay attention to or look at. Like they're picking up on these tiny little subtle cues that we don't even know that we're giving off, but they're so in tune with that in our nonverbal stuff that, they just like think that you mean one thing when you could mean something completely different. Yeah. So, yeah they're so tuned. It's, it's a weird thing to think about because we don't, you know, we, even though we've evolved with dogs for a long, long time, like I've, I've watched two different times in my life. I've been out in the, out in the field and I've watched packs of coyotes hunting and mm-hmm. Like from a distance, I watched a really long hunt happen where I was turkey hunting one time and I saw these deer coming in and these this pack of coyotes came in and they organized like a deer drive. And I could see it all happen where like a coyote would go sit on this side of the brush and a coyote would sit on this side of the brush and then some of the other ones would swing around it. And uh-huh. those coyotes organized a deer drive without yeah, being able to talk. Uh-huh. <laughs> And I, you know, I just, I was very fortunate to be in a situation to watch this. I saw it happen one other time when I was mule deer hunting too, where I was like, they were posting standards and they were moving through the straw. And I'm like, they tell each other at what, Hey, this, you're doing this. I'm doing this. We're going to go around this way. There's something down here and they're not saying a word. And so for us to think we're going to spend our entire lives with these dogs and to not factor in like the body language side of things is, it's just a mistake, I think. Yeah, body language is a huge thing for dogs. They're constantly trying to figure out what we're trying to tell them. For sure. So, Hannah, we're about out of time here. You are you're working on your masters. Yeah. You will be you'll get your doctorate. I'm positive, right? Probably. <laughs> it's, it, is uh, I was thinking when you were explaining to me your your history in school, I was like, "There's no chance there's not going to be a Dr. Hannah Decker here in the future." Is that true? That's yeah. Dr. Erica and I have actually talked about that recently. So we're trying to figure that out. I'm going to, right now I'm just going to focus on getting my master's. And then once that's done, then I'll focus more on my PhD, but probably there's probably like an 85% chance that I'm going to be doing my PhD. I, I, I have no doubt about that. All right. Two questions for you before we wrap this up. What's your favorite kind of dog? Favorite breed? Ooh. Well, so at the Penn vet, working dog center. Um, when I was there interning for the summer, we had a litter of, they were older, but there was a litter of six Dutch shepherds. And so I, I really just like Dutch shepherds a lot, but like we were talking about with the mouths and the Dutchies, I'm not at a point yet where I can welcome one into my home and into my life. I need to go through more dogs. I need to learn the breed better before I get one. So eventually I will have a Dutchie. But I think my next dog, my second favorite probably would be any sort of herding breed mix. I really enjoy the focus and the drive that a lot of the herding dogs possess, whether that be a Border Collie, specifically a Border Collie or a Border Collie Australian Shepherd. I don't think I would do an Australian Shepherd, a full Australian Shepherd. I think I would want it mixed with a little bit of the Border Collie, but something, some herding dog mix, I think would be a good one for my next dog. Those uh, we've we've had Fonzie Bassan on, who's a who's a really well known collie trainer and herding dog trainer, and I got to see him work with those dogs, and I had never witnessed border collies doing what they were bred to do. It is wild. I mean, he, it is it, the focus on those dogs is so incredible. It's like it's, the, you know, it's the, amazing the way they get down and they are so in tune to those sheep. It is exactly like watching a Nat Geo video of a lion hunting and that lion's just laying down watching like a herd of impala and like, okay, which yeah. one's going to break for you? Which one? It, incredible focus. All right. So we know you're number one and number two. What's your least favorite kind of dog? Ooh. Let's, let's say, I know you would never do this, but what's the dog you'd be most likely to kick just because you don't like it? To kick? <laughs> Oh, no. Well, I'm going to lump them all together and say that I'm not the biggest. I prefer large dogs. So I would like a dog that's at least 35 pounds. Okay. And so I I will do small dogs. I've worked at so many boarding facilities and daycares that I've interacted with a lot of small dogs. And I some of them are great. I just prefer the larger dogs. 
So I'm just going to lump them all together. Do, so do, under 35 pounds is not my favorite. In my industry, uh, as a writer, do you know what we call what you, how you just answered that? What? <laughs> weasel words. We say, yeah, we say, funny. I got to use some weasel words here. Cause I can't say exactly the truth. I don't like little dogs as much either. I oh, like, actually, I, I'm also going to lump these dogs together. Um, brachiocephalic dogs. What is not that? Not a fan of. I don't so know it's the dogs with the pushed in faces, oh. the dogs that it, it just pains me. I know I'm going to offend some people, but I just feel so bad for them because it just pains me to hear them breathe because they can't. Yeah. And so I would never own a brachiocephalic dog. Me either. We're, we're on the same page there. Hannah, yeah. thank you so much, so much for coming on. Uh, why don't you let everybody know where they can find you and follow along with your adventures? Yes. So on Facebook, we have a, our lab is called the Virginia Tech Applied Animal Behavior Lab. On Facebook, the page is called Applied Animal Behavior and Welfare Lab at Virginia Tech. And so there are three other people in my lab that are also doing some cool projects with dogs and some with horses. And so we'll post some information on there. Hopefully when we get the ball rolling and get these pet dogs involved, we'll see some cool videos and some pictures on the Facebook page. Yeah. We, we when you get this established and you're, you're saving the world, we're going to get you back on. Cause I can't wait to see where you go with that. Um, Hannah, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a blast. Yes. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of sporting dog talk. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and our YouTube channel. And of course, if you liked what you heard on this episode, please, please, please subscribe. That helps us out so much when we get to see the support from our audience. And lastly, thanks for listening.